Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I am here with um, head ninja master of Lasse Fair Books, a.k.a. Jeffrey Tucker. And uh, thanks for taking the time, Jeff. We're going to talk about Aaron Swartz today. Of course, quite a sad story. But before we dip into that, not that Vegas needs a lot of selling, but I thought it might be worth mentioning our Vegas trip. That's great. You know, it's astonishing that this interview has started just as the train rode by, is going by. Do you hear it's that? It's the train of progress. It's the train of the future. Oh, wait, that would be teleportation. But uh, I have this constant train problem. Uh, but the good thing is that the train comes and it goes. And unless it hits somebody. <laughs> then it comes and stops. Either way, the sound will go away. It'll be gone one second here. Okay. What is it honking its horn at? Does it, requ- it must be required to do that at crossings or something. There. That's it. That's it. That, it's, it's a fun train. Anyway, yeah, let's talk about Vegas. We've got um, the beginnings of a plan, don't we? I mean, for this Vegas trip. Um, we've got, uh, of course, we're going to have a whole day this year. Last year, we just had, what, an hour or two? Yep. This year, we've got a whole day. And... A lot of exciting stars and things. They're expecting 3,000 people. John Stossel's doing his show there. Um, you're going to be doing a lot of shows for laissez-faire. We're going to be recording a lot of things. And um, yeah, we've got a long list of you know, the, the most excellent, most exciting progressive thinkers in the, in the world of, of liberty and anarchism you know, uh, coming. And I'm hoping that we can talk about all the edgiest possible topics. You know? So. Well, I'm going to be completely thrilled to meet John Stossel because um, I really want to pitch to him being the star in my Freddie Mercury biopic, which I feel he would be an excellent choice for. Either him or Borat. We're still working on who would be best, uh, but uh, that may be something we won't talk about too much in this show because that's sort of a pet project of mine. But um, So who, who's coming down and what are the topics going to be? Well, um, so I don't want to you – know, I have a list of like 20 people and probably only you know 10 will, will make it through, so I, I shouldn't say for sure. But the topics I want to cover – are things are a little different, you know. Um, I want to talk. We want to talk about crime and punishment and the jail problem, you know, and and libertarian solutions to criminal criminal justice and and those kinds of issues, which is an important subject that you know it's not explored nearly enough. And we've got some experts out there on that. Of course, I want to raise the topic of intellectual property and kind of get into some of the nitty gritty of of that subject because it's like ever more relevant. It seems like every day, you know. Uh, like, I feel like with that topic, it's like in, in uh, Godfather 3, I keep trying to take myself out, but they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, right. No, it is It is a challenging yeah. topic for sure. And because there are so many knowledge workers in the libertarian movement, uh, it is it is the great temptation. You know, Everyone has their weak spot when it comes to true freedom. Uh, for me, it's unschooling. For some people, it's intellectual property. Uh, for you, it's the absence of a bow tie. Everybody has... Uh, the, the, their challenges when it comes to how we can most be yeah. free. And uh, intellectual property is one of them. I don't know if you heard recently, but uh, apparently, and I, I only know the sketchiest outlines, you may know more, the, the Ron Paul has applied to um, the, um, uh, the, the ICANN, I guess, uh, aspect of the United Nations to have ronpaul.com and ronpaul.org transferred to him, I guess, forcibly, uh, without paying compensation to the existing domain holders who've been running the site as a fan site for many years, and they claim have put 10,000 hours in and uh, raised millions of dollars for him and so on, and they've made an offer to sell it to him for 
quarter of a million dollars with the website intact or whatever, and he's rejected and he's gone to the state, which you know doesn't seem entirely in line with you know trade. It seems like using eminent domain, I suppose. You which took I, my I'm line. Sure I was, something I was, that most was, libertarians would object. I was going to. You took my line. I was going to say it gives new meaning to the word eminent domain. Yeah. So that's yeah. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. I mean, I can't help but think that whoever's behind this. Uh, doesn't understand something about the internet. You know, we're not. This is this is this is real property. It's it's a little more significant than going in and taking somebody's home uh, because it's a it's a it's a home that with a global reach. You know, so it, it's right. gigantically significant, and I can't help but think that it was some some lawyers who who. Uh, you know, following conventional routes, you know, there's so many expedients in, in 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 this world of business. You know, people can do very nasty things to other people, um, and uh, and lawyers don't have any uh, reservations about using whatever kind of clubs they have. That's sort of their job, in a way. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it's of course um, very. Um, well, it's very disturbing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think uh, his, one of his sons' name was on the legal document, so it's not something that he probably doesn't know about. Uh, it does seem like a pretty not great way to get property from someone. They're not domain squatters, right? Domain squatters. It's another one of these words like price gouging, domain squatters, or what it sounds like. It just makes it sound really bad. But uh, domain squatter, somebody who just buys the name and then just basically, quote, extorts you. But, I mean, I don't see how that's a problem. I mean, they're first. They've homesteaded the name. Yeah. Uh, they can then pay you for stuff. Uh, and uh, I remember chatting with a guy on a plane once back in my business days who'd bought, um, uh, I think, buychemicals.com or something like that and, and had sat on it for a while and then made a good deal of money uh, reselling it. And I don't see what what, what an, I mean, that's the whole point of of, um, of mining, which I know a little bit about having been a gold panner and prospector for about a year and a half in my youth. Uh, you go and you, you, you stake a whole bunch of um, land that you think might have some value. In our particular case, we were looking for uh, glaciers that may have dragged gold deposits down. So we're following back wherever we found gold anomalies, we're following back the glacier paths to see if we could find the source. Right. But of course, it's a pretty wide net to cast. You just cast your net wide, then you do more exploring. And so... Uh, is that land squatting? No, that's just establishing some mineral rights over land, uh, and so. But that's not the case with the Ron Paul sites. I mean, they they are fan sites. They've got you know rich deep content and all that, and um, you know the fact that they offered to sell and and uh, he didn't want to. And they offered, I think, RonPaul.org for free as a goodwill gesture. Now that's being used against them in the legal documents, and uh, it's uh, it's just not a great thing. Like if someone doesn't want to sell, I don't think you get to go to the state to get them to compel. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the demand squatting the issue alone is kind of interesting. But you're right; this is not a case of demand squatting. But I, I agree with you that uh, demand squatters have rights too. You know, uh, you know the the Pope died this morning, so I was just curious. I looked up uh, PopeBenedict16th.com. <clears throat> it turns out it's a you know an advertising site that uh, you know tries to. You know, tries to run ads and and that sort of thing, sort of Google bait, you know. Of, of. but it's an entrepreneur. It's, it's, you know, I, I would even defend that because it, you know, um, it's homesteading in a way. It shows that somebody had better foresight, you know, than than somebody around the Pope. And uh, if the domain's valuable, and there is a, a regular market for domains. I mean, I don't think people entirely understand this, but it it works just like real estate. This is a scarce good, and. Um, you know, about ten years ago, it was the equivalent of you know buying up domains 
was the equivalent of you know the the Western land uh, speculators, you know, and and you have to keep them renewed. I mean, it's not like you can just buy it one time and hold on to it forever. You have to kind of, and sometimes they they expire, and you can sweep in if you're if you've got a, your eye on a domain, you can see when its expiration comes, and then like jump in, you know, when the opportunity is there. But it's an it's, in other words, it's just normal economics. I mean, in a peaceful society, you um, if you want something, if, you, if in a peaceful society, in a free society, if you want something that somebody else has, you've got to figure out a way to trade with them to get it. Well, and the the interesting thing is that if the claims of the Ron Paul site owners are true or valid that they have raised millions of dollars, then it seems like a bit churlish to not give them some of that money back. The other thing, too, is that if you look at the hidden upside, which is I always look at the sort of long-term hidden upside, especially as when I was in business, imagine if Ron Paul paid a quarter million dollars to a fan site. Imagine how many more fan sites he would get from people who would be hoping to make that kind of windfall. I mean, it would really spread his, uh, his reach uh, around the internet. And uh, that's something that would probably be worth a lot more in terms of raising revenue for, I think he's got a TV project or something. It would be a lot more valuable in raising revenue than what he would spend to, to get yeah. the domain, just getting other people thinking like, wow, maybe I could cash in too. Uh, that's not a bad yeah. thing to I mean, have floating m- around the web. Many software applications are developed in hopes that you know, a larger company will, will buy them. I mean, this is this is the internet economy, I and mean, this is one aspect of the internet economy. So I buy, you know, a, a domain, I develop a very nice thing solely. I mean, I, I try to make it popular, try to get a lot of traffic, get a high search search engine ranking, and when it becomes valuable enough, and it seems like something that another company wants, either looks at as a p- potential competitor, um, or genuinely desires the the product, you know, they sweep, sweep in and, and purchase it. I mean, there's, it's, it's a global bazaar for, for domains, and, it, and it's, it's for me, I've used it in my writings as an example of how, um, you know, a piece results from, from trade, you know. But somebody like Icon's rules on this stuff actually interferes with that because uh, it introduces a moral hazard and, and encourages people to use, you know, violent takings rather than peaceful trade uh, to, get their, to get their way. And this would be an example of that. I didn't realize what you said. I, mean, I just assumed that this was just a typical. Sometimes lawyers do things that, that people are not aware of. You know? But so I, I don't know to what extent Ron's actually aware of the implications of this. But um, and actually, I find it um, a little bit alarming that, that some people have come out in, in defense of this because, you know, on trademark grounds or whatever, you know, I mean, as if as if you can like own your name as property and prevent anybody else from using it. I mean, that's a very, uh, I would say, you know, that's not really a libertarian solution uh, at all. Well, in the precedent, I mean, he's according to the website owners, he, he's written letters of thanks to them for all of their help in supporting him for many years. So it wasn't that he was unaware of this. It's just that when he wants a new project and wants the name, then suddenly uh, the power of the state starts to look mighty appealing, which I can understand. Uh, but uh, I think this is um, a, uh, it's not so much an argument against Ron Paul as an argument against the ring of power, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if even Frodo could be corrupted, then we, we got to put the ring into the mountain, right? That's the basic yeah. idea. I mean, if even Ron Paul is tempted to save some money by going to the power of the state, uh, with all of his principles and all of his knowledge, uh, this just shows that nobody is immune to the temptations of this kind of power, which means it's an argument for, you know, the full-on stateless society uh, rather than let's get to a sort of constitutionally limited um, republic or something. 
Yeah, but you know, it's it's funny because it's not. It, it's true that people regard the state as an expedient, but but it, but it really isn't over the long term. You know, because um, I don't think that you'd really want to host a business on on a domain that was stolen from somebody else. You know, I mean, it's just not a good it's not a good business model, really. I mean, I always feel like trade and peace is is a not not just a, a good thing. Not just the moral thing, but in the long long run, it's the most workable thing of all. Yes, yeah, and certainly, I think a reputation damage by an avowed libertarian using the power of the state to forcibly transfer property, if that is indeed what's happening, uh, is going to cost him more uh, in in the long run than he could possibly have saved by paying the market value. And yes, it's a government industry, it's a government setup, the domain name thing is under government, but still, uh, there is some elements of, of oh, trade involved. Sure. Listen, before, because we never did end up talking about when, free, when Freedom Fest oh. is, because so we're good at chatting and yeah. bad at marketing, well, so well, let's uh, yeah, mention that as well, just so people can come One of the things that I really want this day to, because there's a lot of competitive things that go on at Freedom Fest, and a lot of alternatives, so I want, I want us to you know, really stand out as having, doing something really spectacular and interesting and different. So one of the things I really want to cover is practical, uh, this actually does tie into the domain name issue, practical ways to live out libertarian principles. Uh, to me, that's really the, the, the cutting edge of thinking at this point, because I mean, I think we know that politics has failed us, um, academia is a wonderful solution for a, a tiny minority, but what about for the larger numbers of, of people that come around to this view that, that peace and trade is, is better than, 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 than violence? I think we need better ways to engage people in, in a productive a building of liberty going forward. And I, we've been working here at Leslie Fair for, for several months and coming up with a guide you know, to these ways, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, personal finance or <clears throat> just the conduct, conduct of your, of your private life, how to avoid the, the traps that the state has set up for you, you know, of which there are many, the state nudges us in all these kind of different directions and to become aware of those nudges and avoid them is uh, a way towards live, living a freer, um, more prosperous life. And so those are some of the topics I want to talk about. I want to talk about family, family law, and, you know, just lots of different kinds of unusual topics because, I mean, I, <clears throat> as, as important as I think um, economic theory is, I mean, I've spent a good part of my life, you know, on that subject, um, it's not the only topic. And um, when we're talking about the, the idea of liberty, we're really addressing something gigantic. And, and it has to do with the whole social order, the whole way the world is structured. And, and it penetrates even to our individual lives and what we decide to do and how we decide to conduct our lives uh, privately. So this is a giant subject, and I would like to explore more of those further reaches of libertarianism. Um, the dates, I don't actually have them. Um, is, is it, is it uh, J July 12th through 14th, or maybe you can look it up real quick. Let me check. Yeah. It's going to be a great event. I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it's just Freedom Fest. You know, it, it'll come right up. Yep. All right. So, um, so Freedom Fest. Ah, look at that. You know that they are um, <laughs> appealing to not the youngest crowd when they include Roman numerals in the date. Uh, 
<laughs> let me just so yeah Steve Forbes is going to be the Art Laffer Jim Rogers Steve Moore um, I guess I'll be there uh, you'll be there um, some other uh, great people it's July 10th to 13th okay. at Caesars Palace in Las yeah, Vegas yeah and the theme is are we Rome and I you know I think the answer to that is you know probably probably yes I don't know who we is because uh, increasingly uh, uh, I'm probably like many people I, I, I'm more and more thinking of myself as like a citizen of I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but as citizens of the world, I don't like to think of we as being like Americans anymore. You know, I mean, to me, that's almost a dated idea. I mean, certainly in a digital sense, I have as many friends abroad as I have, you know, in this country. So, uh, but anyway, um, well, the other thing I I think would be worth exploring as well is um, when it comes to lifestyle, you know, and that's a tough word because I've heard it said, and it probably is quite true that people who use the word lifestyle have neither life nor style, but um, uh, we, I think we would like to inculcate, I'd like to make the claim that we should try to inculcate a lifestyle that people can envy. Uh, envy is a very underrated uh, uh, virtue uh, because envy can, of course, is part of aspiration. It's part of wanting something better uh, and different. You know, the fat person may envy the thin person, the smoker may envy the person who can run a marathon, and it can really impel us to, I mean, it, most of advertising is based on envy, some of it good, some of it not so good. But um, uh, we generally, I would think as a community, do not necessarily focus on having lives that people can envy. I think that a lot of times libertarians and, and political activists have lives that look like a kind of Dantean circle of hell to a lot of people on the outside. Like, come join us in our doom porn and our, uh, you know, <laughs> we are the ministers of doom and gloom from the kingdom of woe is me, uh, that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. There's not much we can do about it. We're all going to stockpile food in the basement, uh, buy gold and uh, shake in under our blankets. And people look at that and say, well, that doesn't look like a lot of freedom to me. It doesn't look like something that I'd really want to yeah. get involved in. And uh, so I think having, uh, focusing on personal freedom and personal virtues creates a life, uh, I think, that's really uh, abundant with, with happiness oh, yeah. and with uh, intimacy and with uh, love. And I think that's something that people can envy. But if we keep focusing on, you know, politics and, and the sort of futile research of uh, studying things we can never yes. change, uh, I think that we are boxing ourselves into a kind of unappealing corner. And, and the reality of the world is that people make a lot of surface decisions. You know, it'd be great if we could convince everyone in the Socratic form of wisdom and virtue. But the thing is that people make a lot of shallow decisions at the moment. We can't change that. That is the way of the world. Yeah. But we can appeal to it uh, by creating lives of more envy. And I think that the, the people can envy more or people can look up to or say, I want me some of that. Whatever you've got, I want yeah. me some of that. And I think that really can only result from the Yeah, and we need to budgets. talk more openly about these subjects. I mean, there's all kinds of issues like, like education. I mean, we really do have choices in the way we go about education. And the digital age has allowed us to have more choices than we used to have. So what are, what are the alternatives out there? And how can they viably, be viably put into effect to great uh, personal profit? Personal finance, I already mentioned. But another one is how do you deal with tangling with the law? I mean, this is, these are practical areas. I mean, how should a libertarian deal with... Um, you know, the criminal justice system. I mean, because all of us at one point or another in our lives will, you know, at any moment could get tangled up in it. Um, you know, how, how do we, how do, is oh, it best to fight or is it best just to, uh, to go along and, 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 and pay and get out as soon as possible? You know, how, what are the best ways to use technology? I mean, should we, should we fear the technology and its invasions on our privacy or should we use it to our personal uh, benefit? Uh, in a way of kind of shoring up our, our personal capital. <clears throat> these are 
these and many other topics, no one of which is going to make you free, you know, of course. But if you put them all together and at least start thinking seriously about these ideas, you could find yourself living a freer life than you otherwise might. And I think that's the right way to look yeah. at it. So I guess this is a fairly decent segue into this um, Aaron Swartz. I wonder if you could just summarize for those who may be watching this a little bit later when it has receded from the <laughs> two-minute attention span of the modern population, uh, the story of what happened to this this poor young man. Well, you know, I'm, I have to say, Stefan, that I'm actually pleased to see that, that the story, that, that his legacy continues to actually, I would say, even grow after his death. Because my fear was that uh, it was all for naught, that it would all just go away. But mm. now I've just read a huge article this morning on Slate. It was a wonderful biographical account of, of his life. There's a new uh, foundation, uh, Schwartz Foundation, named in his, in his honor. There's new prizes coming out named on him. I mean, essentially, this, this kid, he was somehow blessed with an astonishing insight into what the age of the Internet would mean for, for, uh, for himself and for the world as a whole. Of course, he was a brilliant uh, coder from a very early age. Um, I mean, I think even from the age of like 10 or 11 or something like that, he was writing complex computer code. Uh, he wrote the first program for the RSS feeds. He was founding all sorts of um, new ventures. Uh, he began to work with all the top people at MIT in the industry to uh, innovate with Creative Commons. And uh, he was, you know, he had a long involvement with, with Reddit, and uh, he tried very hard to. One of the things that really annoyed him is that uh, open source federal uh, court records you have to pay to get them online. And he was a real activist to, uh, you know, sort of. He was an early hacker in a way, in, a, in the best possible sense. I mean, to download all those files and make them available for free. So he was all about information liberation, and. And this, this, um, sorry, his his downloading of these court documents. I, I think that they you had to pay ten cents a page, and he was arguing that they're not copyrighted. Uh, they are paid for by taxpayers' dollars in their creation, right? And everyone gets paid in the, in the involvement of creation of them. Therefore, it should be open yeah, to the yeah. public. He downloaded them. It was not illegal, uh, but the FBI began to uh, keep a file on him. They surveyed his uh, surveilled his house, his parents, uh, and they really began to uh, to take quote notice of him, uh, which probably when it came to the subsequent offense uh, made him in the eyes of the law a repeat offender uh, and uh, this probably did not of course help uh, his his case at yeah. all. Yeah, no that's right and so when it came down to and, of, and of, I think the reason I've written this in several articles, the reason they really went after him was that he was innovating new models of political activism. Um, that's not quite the right word. He was What he was trying to do was um, use digital tools to create a more democratic environment so that the ol oligarchs that are running the state can't just you know have uh, freedom to do whatever they want to do. You know, it was really very brilliant. And um, so uh, practically alone, he stopped SOPA from going through, which was a, a, a kind of egregious piece of legislation that would have led to vastly more censorship. Um, and he stopped it. I mean, it was really one of the most amazing political events of my lifetime. I'm not used to seeing anything really good happen. Well, they proposed the only thing that I think would be analogous was um, Phyllis Schlafly's uh, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. She almost single-handedly prevented the enactment of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, I think that was in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but it is remarkable for one person to be associated with stopping a juggernaut. Yeah. Like, it is literally like that Chinese guy with the tank or like one person stopping the Patriot Act or something. It's, it really is quite astounding. And the government does not like to be thwarted in this kind of way. I'm getting a train. Why don't you talk for a few seconds? Let me, let me turn the sound off.
oh, you know me, don't like to chat, out of turn. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so whenever you uh, thwart uh, the government, and, and particularly the government is, is uh, you know, keeps its, sec- uh, its prisoners, uh, the prisoners of secrecy, keeps all of its secrets locked up and doesn't like people poking in and getting access. It really likes to control the flow of information, despite, of course, you know, Obama's claims to run an open, uh, um, uh, le- open and legitimate uh, kind of administration. Uh, he's, you know, clamped down on all kinds of releases of information. The government is very frightened, uh, like cops are of you filming them. The government is very frightened of information getting yeah. out against their wishes. Aaron and, understood uh, of course, the government... Re- yeah, he understood yeah. the power of this stuff. And what is ta- shocked me about that SOPA case in particular is, like, I think this Equal Rights Amendment um, battle that he referred to, which I completely forgot about, but uh, that dragged on for years. The SOPA thing happened in almost like a matter of days. You know, I mean, the whole thing just collapsed uh, with his tools. And I... I was riveted by that thing. I mean, I wrote several articles at the time saying, oh, my God, did this actually happen? SOPA was one of those pieces of legislation like the World Trade Organization or NAFTA or, or uh, you know, bailout of the banks after 2008. One of those things that both parties agreed on that was just going to happen no matter what. Aaron just single-handedly stopped it. Oh, the other interesting thing, I only found this out this morning. He was working on an open source uh, software package uh, for nonprofit um, activism, so that you would just download the program and it would allow you to generate national campaigns in, in any country in every language uh, on a particular topic, sending emails, uh, automating uh, emails to congressmen, um, you know, uh, it, it just a, like moveon.org uses this to great effect, but their program they're using is proprietary. So he was writing and he was almost completed with it, a, a open source version of this so that any politically active organization could download it and do their thing. That, that was his goal. I mean, he believed that we needed new structures of uh, the relationship between the citizen and government in the digital age. And it didn't make any sense that, that the way government is run nowadays is entirely, you know, anal- the analog age stuff, you know, it's like where this you know, these, these the citizens have no power whatsoever. We have to vote for representatives, and then they go and, in their wisdom, do what, you know, somehow represent us. And he thought this whole system was ridiculous and didn't have any role, that we really needed a, a true dem- democratic uh, methods. Now, now, Aaron's politics um, are not like uh, politics I think you and I would say, okay, we agree with him completely. I mean, he, he, took, he came from a kind of a, uh, uh, the, the books he read were more of the far left, uh, like you know Chomsky and and some of the far far left wing uh, things like that. But you know I've listened to many of his talks online, and uh, wow, this guy had extraordinary insight. I mean, one of the things he always pointed out was that the internet is nothing but a giant copy machine. I mean, I, I love I love listening to his interviews because he's extremely insightful. And thank goodness they're all on YouTube. And I, I would urge anybody to just spend an afternoon, you know, watching the speeches. You just learn so much. He had such insight. He was a real radical in the same sense that you and I are. So, I mean, most everything he says, I find myself just nodding my head in agreement. But anyway, we should move on to, the, to his tragic death. Sorry, just, just before we do that, there's something that um, I read that he um – he spoke, you know, the truth to power. This He spoke this as an early teen in his school. He said, um, every day millions of innocent children are unwillingly part of a terrible dictatorship. 
The government takes them away from their families and brings them to cramped, crowded buildings where they are treated as slaves in terrible conditions for seven hours a day. They are indoctrinated to love their current conditions and support their government and society. As if this was not enough, they are often held for another two hours to exert themselves almost to the point of physical exhaustion and sometimes injury. Then, when at home during the few short hours which they are permitted to see their families, they are forced to do additional mind-numbing work which they finish in return the following day. This isn't a repressive government in some far-off country. It's happening right here. We call it school. How fantastic. And yes, he had a problem with advertisements. He wanted the web to be free of advertisements and so on because he had this sort of platonic idea of the purity of mind exchange with no concept of profit. And I mean, okay, so he got all that lefty crap, but that's okay. How how on earth would he be exposed to anything different for the most part? I mean, he hung around with professors, for God's sakes. They're not a big fan of of, um, uh, ads unless it's on something that they profit from. So... Uh, but I thought that was an amazing thing to say about that's school, um, having not been exposed to a lot of libertarian no, thought. That's amazing. I mean, he really did have a nose for uh, despotism and oppression and, and had this undying passion to just, just smash the barriers. I mean, he was a real idealist in the sense that he thought – I mean, he, he grew up in a time where the internet was always there, you know. And so therefore, as being like unusually gifted, uh, he had particular insights that – people for whom the internet was new in their adult lives or something just didn't have, you know. Uh, he was the first, he was a, really a child of the digital generation, you know, and, and as a programmer, he saw the potential and it infuriated him when he saw people resisting, you know. Uh, he didn't understand what the problem was, you know, why aren't court records available for free? And this, this JSTOR thing that eventually snagged him was a particularly interesting case because uh, JSTOR is, you know, available to academics and, you know, it's, it, it, it's available on college campuses. The ultimate kind of internet feudalism in the sense that, you know, if you're on a certain IP, IP range, you can get all the material, but if you step out of that range, it's completely blocked to you. And it was upset him very much just on matters of justice because the people who wrote this research, you know, were wanting to give it to the world. This is scientific work over the last hundred years in every field and it was taken from them by publishers using copyrights and not allowing the authors of these articles to even have access to them and then uh, and then JSTOR which is a great company in many ways and by the way JSTOR wasn't responsible for any of the court actions against uh, Aaron Schwartz so I think we should they, they wanted him to not be prosecuted yeah. they specifically said do not do anything yeah. And also, he influenced them uh, to loosen up their policies. And today, their policies are far looser than they've, they've ever been. So you can access JSTOR in ways that you hadn't been able to. So already, even in that area, he made a big... But he, he went to MIT, put a laptop there, had, had uh, his laptop download all the JSTOR stuff and send it to him. And it was, it was all great stuff. I mean, it was typical hacking kind of stuff, which MIT itself had long encouraged. Uh, you know, the culture... Well, and, and to, there was no proof, uh, at least not, not that I've read, there was no proof that he intended to publish this. He could have been using it for research purposes, which is what he did with other stuff that he downloaded. There was no indication that he was then going to go publish this on the right. web, uh, any of this information. Right. But he, yeah, I mean, he, he was offended by, the, by the, uh, what he regarded as unjust barriers. And I must say this JSTOR situation has bugged me for years, and it bugs a ton of people. Most especially it, it bugs the scientific researchers who have published this material. I mean, which is being resold and resold and resold many times over, and they're not getting any benefit of, 
from it whatsoever. I mean, they, and they're forced to publish in these uh, in these copyrighted journals uh, as a, as a matter of career for career reasons. I mean, more recently we're seeing more innovation in the area of of publishing for academic journals, but but over the last hundred years, most of that stuff is just locked up, and it's just it's outrageous. I mean, to a, to an idealist like like Aaron Schwartz, he's like these are gems. This is treasures. This is what our civilization. Um, has has bequeathed to the world, you know, and, and and these are not private inventions. I mean, these are. I mean, for the most part, academic researchers are largely funded by public dollars, and so it is. Um, you know, basically, people are forced to pay for it, and then they're forced to pay for it again, and then it's restricted. And so, how can stuff that is publicly funded be kept from the public? I think that was his basic yeah. uh, uh, idea with this stuff. Yeah, and it was one of the least controversial things that he really ever did. I mean, he did a lot of, of edgy things in his life. So they went after this one, I think, as in retaliation for his anti-SOPA activities. That's what I think, because they feared him. They feared his vision, and they feared what he was going to do next. And, uh, you know, apparently his girlfriend uh, had no clue. So, uh, By the way, Stephanie, you've, you've told, spoken a lot in the past about the role of d- depression and causing things like suicide. Um, but the newest information I've seen on Aaron was that, yes, he was moody. You know, we all are. You know, he had his ups and downs. He had days we woke up and he said, wow, this is going to be a great day, even a great year. Other days he just couldn't get out of bed. You know, that's, that's fairly normal. But as far as clinically depressed, uh, there seems to be not quite enough evidence to suggest that. Um, well, I mean, I think also um, if you're in the sites of the government who's threatening you with decades of prison, uh, in prison, when the money that you've made from your entrepreneurial activities is drained to the point where you're in debt by having to pay lawyers, uh, when you're entangled, uh, he, he read um, Kafka's uh, The Trial, a fantastic yes. book, um, creepy as hell, of course, and, and says that it's not fiction, it's a documentary. This is exactly what happens when you get caught up in this machinery. I would hesitate to use the word depressed with Aaron any more than I would hesitate to use the word agoraphobic to a political prisoner. It's not that he doesn't want to go outside. He's not allowed to go outside. And uh, he's, he's, um, when you're caught in the sights of this kind of horrible machinery, uh, it, is, uh, it is wretched. It, is, uh, it, it sits on your head every day. And it's impossible to escape. And he was facing the kinds of repercussions that are, I mean, close to what Mandela was facing in South Africa. I mean, Mandela spent 27 years under house arrest. They were looking at a minimum of seven was the least that they would uh, would appear to even begin to negotiate from. And they could hit him with up to 30 years in prison. Uh, in other words, you can blow up the economy, cause trillions of dollars of damage to everyday taxpayers, and you get a bailout. But if you move some bits and bytes around uh, on a computer, you get 30 years. I mean, this is the travesty and the hell and the truly Kafka, uh, Kafkaesque nightmare of the modern uh, I- industrial judicial system. I hesitate to call it any kind of justice system. Criminal justice, to me, is an, <laughs> it's just saying the same word twice. Well, but, I'm glad um, to hear you say that because uh, uh, this is something I've, I've wanted to talk about. I mean, sometimes people look at this Aaron Schwartz case and say, oh, he should have fought. You know what's what's with this guy? Why did he kill himself? I mean, that's that's pathetic. You know, but 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 you can. The only person who would really be able to say that is somebody who hasn't experienced what it's like to live in that in that uh, web of coercion uh, that he lived. Well, you think I uh, think of somebody who simply got media attention. I mean, the guy who did that uh, Coney 2012 video, 
uh, I mean, they, they picked over his very bone marrow down to the last uh, degree, and he ended up um, so insane from lack of sleep, he ended up publicly masturbating and getting arrested. I mean, when, you know, I've had a few brushes with this myself. When you get into the laser-eyed sights of some malevolent people with a lot of bandwidth, uh, it's it's pretty creepy. It is a pretty creepy situation. Yeah. And it's it's always fine to say, fight. But what does that even mean when you're facing That's the right. state? No, it I mean, you, what what does it mean to fight? You you, you can't leave. Uh, you you are in this horrible machine that 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 you can't control. Uh, it's it's not subject to any external validation. There's no third party who says, well, the DOJ is acting good or bad. I mean, the the, the judge, jury, and executioner are kind of all yeah. in the same bucket. Uh, they have infinite resources that they don't have to pay for. Everything you have, you have to pay hundreds of dollars an hour for. Uh, it's you know, it sounds like stay and fight, but I mean, even if it's David and Goliath, you got a slingshot, he's got an eyeball, and you can at least run away. But when you get caught in the machinery of the state, I've heard this from a number of people, you get caught in the legal machinery of the state, what does it even mean to say, I'm going to fight? Fight what? Fight well, how? And win yeah, what? And they just make life worse for you when you do. Um, I mean, I'm very influenced, I must say, by, you know, one, one Sunday morning when I was sitting at, sitting at, at brunch, Sunday morning, <clears throat> there's a knock at the door. Open the door, and a guy holds up a warrant for my arrest, right? It's got my picture on it. And, uh, you know, I said, what for? He said, well, failure to appear for this traffic ticket, you know, thing. It was just a dumb thing. And I said, oh, for God's sake, you know, here, let me just write you a check, you know. No. And so, you know, he walked me out to the car, had to put my hands on the car. I've got cuffs on me, shoves me, you know, with head in first in the back seat, drags me down, books me. I go to jail. I don't know these people. I mean, they seem like nice enough people. You know, and I was, I was kind of talking bad to the cop, you know, saying, can't you get a real job? I mean, this is, you know, stealing a man from his home, you know. But it doesn't really do any good. I mean, they've got you. They've captured you. I mean, you are a captive. You're, yeah. it's, it's worse than a slave, really, because I think that, you know, most of the slave owners actually want the slave you know, have some some value they have over the slave, right? They want you to do some work or something. When the state grabs you, they don't value you at all. They're just doing their job. It's even worse. So, um, and you're, everybody who controls your life, um, they don't care anything about you. And they take away your, your watch. You know, a watch is really important to watch the passage of time so you have no awareness of things like that. I mean, it's metaphysically, it guts you completely. I mean, it just it fries you emotionally, and intellectually in every other way. I mean, your whole world changes. Well, this is, I mean, they did this to Aaron Schwartz and then, you know, let him out or whatever, but continued to bankrupt him and, and then threatened him that you are definitely going to back. You aren't, there is no solution to this. You're going to go back seven years, uh, maybe 40, but, you know, if you, if you plead guilty, we'll let you off, uh, send you to jail for seven years. What a terrifying reality to carry around with you you know, every day, and you can buck yourself up, you know, on alternative days, you know, but then, uh, but then eventually, I, I kind of see it, I mean, I see, I mean, but basically his father was right, the state killed him, you know, the, the uh, federal prosecutor and MIT were responsible for Aaron's death, it's just, it's just a fact, I mean, his oppressors are the, are the ones responsible for what happened. There, there is an existential thing that occurs when you face institutionalized injustice, which is if you're facing injustice from some criminal gang, then you at least have 
the general support of society that you're facing an injustice. You know, like so in the movie High Noon, right, where the, the, the bad guys are coming to town and Gary Cooper's trying to get everyone to come out and fight. People said, okay, it's not my fight. I don't want to come. But at least I get that there are bad guys coming to town and you're trying to do something good. I'm just not going to join you up there on the ramparts. But when you are facing something from the state and you realize that people are saluting the flag, which is the symbol of the state, when you hear the children and the adults uh, at um, uh, sports events singing the national anthem and praising the state, when you see everyone talking about the candidates' policies and how – so that's, that's, I think, the fundamental difference – I would guess. I mean, who knows what was going on in his mind, but there's an existential thing where you say everybody is praising and worshipping and donating money to and obeying and singing hymns to and uh, folding flags delicately to this monstrous institution that is, you know, like an elephant slowly sitting on my chest and crushing the life out of me. It's the lack of understanding of the general population about the evils that you're facing And it's almost like suicide is not a way of saying, I don't want to live in this world. It's basically saying, I don't want to live in this world with all you people. Because it's one thing to be a slave, but at least the slaves knew that they were slaves. And they took to their their Christian hymns and they sang their spirituals as a way of identifying with the Moses and and his flock uh, and a way of, in a sense, silently protesting and and so on, their condition. And there was an underground railroad and and people, of course, tried to escape and there were people fighting against this evil, but they all knew they were slaves. But imagine, well, I guess we don't have to imagine too hard, but imagine for somebody as intelligent and sensitive and not just being a great coder, but seeing the big picture, which is an incredibly rare combination, to, to, to look at the world and to see that people not only don't think that they're slaves, but they think that slavery is freedom. I mean, that, that Orwellian juxtaposition to, to really genuinely see that everyone is praising the man who whips you. It's like, okay, so I go to jail, and at the end of jail, whether it's seven or 30 years, I get to get released back out into the society that is cheering and praising and singing hymns to the people who are flogging me. Do I want to even come yeah. out of jail? let alone go into it. I think, I mean, if I had to guess, it would probably well, be something the, like that. The other thing is that's very alarming about being in jail is that you know there are people out there who care for you and they're worried for you. You think about them all the time, you know, uh, people who love you. And it's heartbreaking to you uh, being in that cell to know that they can't actually access you. You have no way from minute to minute to tell them that you're okay to receive encouragement and love from them and to give love and encouragement back. There's a wall of separation there. I mean, there's no smartphones. You can't text people. You can't post Facebook updates. Your whole world is shattered. So the suffering of others outside is very much on your mind. And the only people that have control over your life, they don't care anything about you. You know, you're not valuable to them. And, and actually, they're not interested in you at all. You know, who you are, what you've done. You're just a number. It's like in, in that movie Les Mis, you know. You're just, you're just a number to them. Uh, you have no personality, no unique talents or anything else. You're just taking up space. You're a person who consumes sandwiches and, and, and water, you know, and, and a little sleeping space. That's all. And, and those are the people who are running your life. The people who love you, you know, you have no connection to them except... And particular days that are assigned uh, where you get, you know, a few minutes to visit with them in a, in a very sterile 
environment. I mean, this, I think your, your term hell is, it's really true. It's the closest thing that this world offers to, to hell. Uh, and seven years, I mean, imagine you're, he was 26 when he died. So uh, seven years would be the whole period of his life, you know, between, you know, 10 and 17. I mean, this is the formative years for this guy. He knew what seven years would mean. You know, this is, this is unspeak, unspeakable. He also knew what, what prison was like because he had been wrapped up in, this, in the system all along. And I think you're right that he was horrified that to live in a world in which something like this could happen to, uh, to, to an idealist who just wanted to do good for humanity and who never hurt anyone. You know, that's what people forget. He never hurt anybody. And yet, he's, as you say, he was the one that the state targeted. Shocking. But fortunately, I think his legacy yes. is going to live on. And the world that he dreamed of, I believe we're eventually going to get there. I really do. Um, in fits and starts, you know, through some resistance. Every age has its great innovations that people resist. Uh, people resisted the printing press. You know, it was, it was, it was scary, you know. Uh, the scribes were going to lose their business. People were going to be printing things that were going to upset the social order. Um, you know, what is this crazy thing where average people can just get books and read them, you know? Wait, you're going to gift the Bible in the vernacular to the people? Yeah, ah! oh, it's, it's like a yeah, calamity. Terrible. I mean, everybody was... It was too disturbing, you know, and there we have real records of, of protests, you know, people just warning of the, the coming doom, you know, with a what happened uh, in the mid-1990s when the internet was, was privatized and we began to see this mass migration uh, to the digital world, way more significant for humanity. So, yeah, we're going to see some resistance and, and that's going to continue. But there'll be no resisting in the end. I mean, in the end, I think there, there will be no stopping this revolution. I think the world that, that he dreamed of, where there's a fundamental change in the relationship between governments and the citizenry, I think that's, that's coming. A fundamental change in the way we access information and what's free and what's paid for. Uh, and a fundamental change in the way we look at who our fellow citizens are and the value of each human being on the planet, which is something he just dreamed of. And I think, I think that world is being, is being born thanks in part to his amazing uh, skills and I think more substantially to his, to his vision. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if we could have progress without martyrs? I mean, good heavens, why, why is it that we need... You know, Jesus, Stephen Biko, whoever it is that, that is going to end up uh, being martyred in order for us to learn something essential about the world. It would be really great if we could mount the steps of knowledge, not on the bodies of the innocent. But unfortunately, where we don't learn by reason, like every addict, we have to learn by tragedy. And uh, I, I really hope that people will recognize this uh, and work to prevent the kind of recurrence by recognizing the relationship that progress has with the state. The state is reactionary, the state is coercive, the state is brutal, the state is relentless, the state is bullying, and the state has stolen the resources it uses to prey upon people. And therefore, uh, as an infinite thief, it will always outlast and outwin and outspend uh, anyone. And I also hope that people will not view this as an act of cowardice, uh, I, what, what this young man did. 
uh, but a, a really, I think, an act of protest. And the protest is fundamentally, I would argue, and again, there's, I have no right to say this on behalf of him or anyone to do with this, but I would argue that his protest really is on behalf of the blindness of his fellow citizens rather than the predation of the state. It's, it's one thing to be taken down by a lion in the middle of the woods or the middle of the jungle where no one's around. It's quite another thing to be taken down by a lion in a crowd where everybody praises the lion. Uh, that is, I think, a special kind of hell that we really don't want to inflict on any more people. And it is just a fact that, that he is not in prison now. You know, he, they did not capture him. You know, and, a, <laughs> and a, as you say, I, I'm reluctant to speak on, these, on this at all, but it's true that he's free in a way. You know, they did not capture him. They would not triumph over him. He would not plead guilty, you know. And look at his legacy. I'm so thankful that we have his speeches now. I mean, in the past, uh, martyrs haven't always had access to such a, a, a tangible thing as like YouTube, you know. But now we can go, and now for all time, hundreds of years from now, we can still hear the words of Aaron Schwartz and look into his eyes and see his warmth and look at his clever smile when he, when he makes a, a funny comment and see how he engages his, his questioners and things. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's very inspiring. I think in honor of his memory, one of the very first thing people should do is go and look at his interviews and, and speeches and, and learn from him. And the second thing is you know, to learn from them and be inspired in our own lives and activities um, and, and how, we, how we continue to fight for freedom and justice in this world. He was, in so many ways, a model for us. And again, this is regardless of politics. You know, our political views might be in the diverge here and there, but he had a beautiful humanitarian vision that I think all, all people can learn from. And he's our teacher now. He's left that legacy. And there, the other thing I'd remember remind people is that there were there were two groups of people in this world who interacted with him. I mean, out, you know, outside of his family and friends, the one was a group of, of academics and intellectuals and business people who welcomed a thirteen and fourteen year old into their midst and treated him as an equal uh, and respected his intelligence and his contributions and uh, uh, funded him and and he did great things. I mean, he you know he he ended up when he made money off the sale of Reddit, he ended up giving money to somebody he had a business partnership with before that didn't work out, just as a way of saying thanks for all of your efforts. I mean, that he was a good guy, and uh, he was welcomed by one group of people into their midst as an equal, despite his youth and so on. And that's more in the 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 civilized tradition of human interaction. On the other group, there were people who basically hounded him into the jaws of death, relentlessly. Uh, and uh, in a truly uh, sadistic uh, and brutal fashion. And if we don't learn to differentiate these two people and to recognize which group is in charge of us, um, boy, this kind of stuff I think is just going to repeat until until yeah, we learn. Thank you. That's a very profound statement. It's really true. The uh, the idea that these people would have the power to destroy such a such a brilliant, young, compassionate, humanitarian you know, genius as Aaron Schwartz is does reveal something fundamentally wrong with the system. <clears throat> Absolutely. I'm, I'm pleased about these White House petitions, actually. I'm not, I don't really go for this kind of activism, but there are some petitions at, at the, the White House petitions site against his uh, persecutors, you know, and I think there are basically two. I mean, one was the uh, federal prosecutor in Massachusetts, and there was somebody else who was like an assistant attorney that was really after him uh, in a most malicious uh, sort of way. 
like Javert and Les Mis or something like that. And there are petitions now online to see these people fired. The White House hasn't responded to them yet, but I'm hoping that, that maybe that could make some modicum of difference. Anything that anyone can do to, to honor his memory and draw attention to his ideals is, is, a, is, a, is a good thing. Well, I think that's that's great. Thanks, uh, thanks again, Jeff. And of course, I, I look forward to to seeing you in Vegas. Um, and uh, uh, if you send me a list of anybody who's uh, maybe attending, I'll post this uh, a, a, along with the video. And hopefully, we can lure some people to come down. Um, do they have to buy tickets to Freedom Fest? I, to I come think to that the they try to book? parse them out in some yeah, way. Exactly. If you're just only interested in let's say fair book thing, I think they do have some special packages for you. Um, but you and I had a blast last time. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I think it's going to be better this time because that was really our first time, really. You know, Laissez Faire had been there in the past. It was my yep. first experience running Laissez Faire at, at that event, and it was a lot of fun. I think this next year is going to be way better, though. Yeah, and look, for people who are in the neighborhood and maybe don't have the money, um, I'm, you know, just come and email. I'm going to be there for um, a while with my family, and I'm really happy to sit down and break bread with listeners, with fans of laissez-faire books. Um, you know, let's let's just sit down and, and uh, have a meal together, and uh, uh, it doesn't all yeah. have to be within the confines. If you if you don't have the money to get in, you can just come down, we'll chat. I'm, I'm always completely eager and happy to meet uh, listeners and, and fans of my show or, or laissez-faire books, so uh, that's well, my offer. If you're if you're broke, uh, get some gas money and, and come. You know, it was really fun for me because it's my first time to to meet you after having admired you for for years. And it's you know, I was initially sort of starstruck and you know, kind of like out of words or whatever. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah. I feel that every morning when I'm shaving in the mirror, I just don't know what to say to myself. I'm sorry, but, but thank yeah, you. Yeah, we, we had lunch, we had dinner, we hung around all the time. Very accessible, and it was it was a blast. And we we all had a really good time. There's a big room that everybody hangs out in where we've got the book table, and you get to meet people. And you know, there's a real you know kind of a, uh, a sharing. Uh, you know, equality there, that it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you're right there walking around, you get to meet some amazing, amazing people, you learn a lot of stuff. So I want to also make sure that our event this year is, is you know, edgy and interesting and explores some topics that are not really so much political as, as applied. And because uh, I think it's important, I think this is the most important thing that we can do as libertarians right now is think about ways to apply what we've learned to our own individual lives. And that's, that's really what I want to focus on. And I hope to get a lot of attention for this and maybe some debate and discussion. Yeah. And uh, so um, maybe we can set up a debate with one of the more prominent people. Uh, I think that would be great fun. So that's freedomfest.com. Uh, of course, uh, if you want to join the Last Fair Book Club, which uh, I um, contribute to, I've got an audiobook reading of an Albert J. Nock book, Our Enemy the State, uh, up there. You can go to lfb.org forward slash S-T-E-F-A-N if you'd like to sign up there. Um, so it's a great deal. You can read about the details on the website. This is Jeffrey Tucker, head uh, nabob, chief Punjabi of Laissez Faire Books. Uh, thank you so much for your time. As always, my friend, it's always a real pleasure, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Really wonderful to be here, Stephen. Thank you.